into our hearts and our minds and our souls, and that we will hear the word, heed to the word, and use it in our lives on a daily basis for the glory of you. In Jesus' name we ask and pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dawn. This morning, uh, think with me for a second, if you you can, and I hope this uh, illustration will help us as we we begin into this book, into this new series. Uh, Imagine uh, for a moment if you uh, walked into an auditorium uh, to go to uh, the performance of an orchestra, and as you walk in, everything looked perfect. Uh, All of the the settings were nice, Uh, everything was was clean, It, it looked proper, as you begin walking in, you were, you were early, you were maybe an hour, hour and a half early, and, and then you looked down there and the musicians were, were preparing, and, and you looked at them as you looked uh, to see what they were wearing. The men were in nice, uh, clean, black uh, tuxedos with nice pressed uh, white shirts, and the women were dressed in beautiful dresses, and as you uh, looked at them unpacking uh, their instruments, they were uh, shining them and polishing them, and, and everything just looked beautiful. You saw the conductor up there, and he was uh, getting his uh, musical sheets ready, and and everything just looked nice. As you uh, heard them uh, practicing, you know, warming up, where they weren't really playing any music, they were just kind of blowing on the instruments, and you uh, were given the impression uh, that this was going to be a great performance, because everything looked as though it was in place. Everything gave the appearance of being like this was going to be a great uh, performance by this orchestra. So you sit down and, uh, and the orchestra gets ready to go and the conductor raises his hands and then he uh, gives the signal for them to start, whatever that signal is. Uh, I'm not a music person. so. Uh, and then when they start playing, all of those uh, images that you had of how things were going to be are shattered. Because after about five seconds, you realize that although these people that are sitting here, they're sitting in the right place, they have the right type instruments, the music notes in the sheets are right, they have polished their instruments, the conductor looks like he knows what he's doing, and they look like they know what they're doing. But after five seconds, you realize that they don't know how to play the instruments. As you begin asking questions later and you begin showing them uh, the sheet of music, you realize that the reason that they don't know how to play the instrument is that they don't know how to read music notes. That the most fundamental thing that's required for playing an instrument is the ability to know what music notes mean. And when this note is here, you do this. When that note is there, you do that. And you realize that the most fundamental thing that the orchestra doesn't know. So that leads to the question of, can this really be an orchestra if they don't know how to play the music? And so as we think about what the book of Galatians is about, as we think about what Paul is writing about, this is the problem that he addresses. Because you take the concept or the illustration and apply it to the church. What is, what is the one thing that is the most fundamental thing to the Christian church that we have to get right? That if we get wrong, it doesn't matter if we're wearing the right thing. It doesn't matter if we have the right thing scheduled. It doesn't matter if we polish our instruments. All these things are meaningless 
if we don't know how to read music notes. And what is the music note for the church? It's the gospel. The gospel. That oftentimes, I think we take for granted. That we assume that we know about. But as the music begins to play in the church, it is sometimes easy to realize that we don't know the notes. And the note is the gospel. So this was the problem that Paul had with the church at Galatia. These churches, numerous churches that he was writing to, that he had started many years before on one of his first missionary journeys that's recorded in Acts 13 and 14. So he started these churches. And what had happened was over time, people forgot how to read the notes. They forgot the gospel that he taught them. And the result was that the church was headed in the wrong direction. So Paul is writing this letter for the specific purpose of getting the gospel right for the churches of Galatia. And that's the message throughout this book. And I think it's very, very relevant to Redbud Baptist Church in the year 2011. Because my fear is that as we continue to, to exist as a congregation, and as we exist as a church, that oftentimes we may be like the orchestra. That on first appearance, everything seems fine. If someone was walking by, they would say, oh, everything's great at Redbud. You know, they're paying their bills. You know, they have people getting baptized. Uh, people are coming to worship. People are coming to Sunday school. I know that church down the road, they, you know, they have a lot less people. They've been declining. They can't even pay their bills. So in comparison to them, Redbud seems to be doing pretty good. And that would be the equivalent of judging us like you would judge an orchestra based simply on what the musicians were wearing and what instruments they had with them without ever listening to them play. So the hope is, is as we look through this book that we will all... Several things. One, if we have never learned to read the music note, we've never learned the gospel, that we will come to understand the gospel maybe for the first time. Maybe you've been at Red Bud for 50 years but you've never actually understood the gospel and what it means. And maybe you understand the gospel, but you have forgotten the gospel. And you have forgotten the importance of the gospel and how it's fundamental to everything that we do here at Redbud. And so the hope is that all these things uh, will be accomplished. That's the goal for Paul as he writes this book to these churches. And I believe that's the goal for us, and that's my desire for us as we go through this book. So, so this morning we'll begin the first message out of the book of Galatians. So uh, I hope you're there already in verses, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 5 this morning, talking about God's apostle and God's gospel. So the problem that Paul was dealing with was not only this church was, was misunderstanding the message of the gospel that he had preached, but some of those that were causing them to misunderstand were telling them, that Paul, they were basically questioning who Paul was. They were like, wait a second. This message that Paul gave you, you know, this is the real gospel. So they were changing Paul's gospel. But also they were questioning who he was. Like, who is this guy, Paul? You know, did he, was he one of the uh, original apostles with, with Jesus? Was he going around with Jesus? You know, who's this guy? You know, nobody knows anything about him. 
this guy, he's just a loner. What he's saying is not the official doctrine that we need to be holding to. And so Paul is one, he's going to, throughout this, this book, is going to be reiterating the fact that he is not just an apostle of man, but he's an apostle of God. And therefore, as an apostle of God, his message is God's message. So the gospel that he is preaching and teaching and writing about here is not some invention of man. It's not some guy's idea. It's not my idea. It's not your idea. It's God's idea. It's God's gospel. So therefore, no one has the right to change it or alter it in any way because it doesn't belong to us. We are not the originators of it. And so those are the two main things that, that we're, we'll be seeing in this passage and then in the weeks to come too. So the first thing we're going to see here in the first uh, two verses is that we are to submit to the authority of God's apostle. And that's what he's wanting the church of uh, these churches to do, and that's what we are to do today. So in verse 1, he simply sets uh, the stage by saying, Paul, an apostle. He's telling them, like, look, I'm writing this letter. My name's Paul, and by the way, I am an apostle. And then he goes on to explain further. Now, what kind of apostle am I? He's saying, I'm not an apostle from men nor through man, but through who? Through Jesus Christ and God the Father. So he's reminding his readers here the fact that, look, I know there's a lot of things going around that are questioning my authority and who I am. He says, let me remind you the fact that I am an apostle. And my apostleship is not from man. No man came to me and said, okay, Paul, you are now an apostle. No church body came to him and said, now, Paul, you are now an apostle. But he's saying that I got my apostleship from who? From God. From Jesus Christ. And so when you think about who the apostles were, they were the twelve who were originally with Jesus, whom Jesus called, whom Jesus chose, and whom Jesus commissioned. And then when Judas betrayed Jesus, and he was killed, the church selected one more by casting lots, so that it was completely not their decision. Basically, it was the equivalent of rolling dice, and the dice fell to... One guy, and he was now the apostle. So you had these 12 apostles, and then Paul was understood to be the 13th apostle. Why? Because in Acts 9, remember that Paul was going to Damascus. And he had a vision. And he saw Jesus. And he was saved by this vision of seeing Jesus. Remember, Jesus came to him and said, Paul, or at that time his name was Saul, saying, Saul, why are you persecuting me? At that point, Paul, or Saul, was converted and eventually came to be known as Paul. So Paul is simply saying that no one selected me, no, the church didn't vote on me, but that I am an apostle from God. Now what are the implications of that? If Paul is an apostle from God, then what does that say about Paul's message that he is preaching and teaching and writing about? Who is it from? It's from God. So as we look at this book, and as we think about the words in it, the significance for the churches 2,000 years ago, and the significance for us today is that this isn't just Paul's opinion. He's not writing an essay on what he thinks the gospel is. He's not writing an essay on what he just kind of has a hunch of what is important. He is writing a letter based on the authority that he has been given by God. So the words here are, yes, they're written by Paul, but they are from God. 
And so they carry authority with them. So as we think about how we are to relate to these words, it's important for us to remember that we are to submit to God's Word. That this is the authority. We don't have apostles today. I'm not an apostle. Apostles, we don't believe, exist anymore in the sense that they were in the New Testament. That when the final apostle John died, that with it, the authority of the apostles died. So the remaining authority is what the apostles wrote, what the prophets and the apostles wrote, which is God's Word. So this morning, I don't come to you to give you my opinion. It's not my job to tell you what I think. My job is to, to the best of my ability, to show you what God's Word says. And when we have Sunday school, it's not the Sunday school teacher's job to give you their opinion or what they think is going on. It's their job to tell you what God's Word says. And so our role as a church is to preach and teach God's Word. We're not interested in personal opinions. We're interested in the authority of God's Word. And so as we go throughout this book, we want to be careful and mindful that we are continuing to submit ourselves to this authority. Not to my authority, not to your authority. But to the authority of God's Word. And as God's people, we want to be a people that lives under God's Word. So when God's Word pushes us in a direction that we're not comfortable with, we need to recognize that the problem isn't God's Word. But the problem is us. The problem is me. Or the problem is you. And so as we go through this, the hope and prayer is that we will be a congregation that joyfully gets our understanding of the Gospel. Not from a book. Not from what some guy said on the radio. Not from me. Not from your mom or dad. Or not from what this other guy thinks or this lady thinks. But we want to get our understanding of the Gospel from God. And God has given us apostles who wrote books that we now call the Bible that is our authoritative source for how to understand the Gospel. Okay, so the first thing is there that we want to submit to the authority of God's Apostle. And that is, we do that by submitting to the book of Galatians and the rest of His Word as He has revealed it. The second thing that we see in verses 3, 4, and 5 is that we want to embrace the message of God's Apostle. Now what is the message that that Paul is going to be getting at? Throughout this whole book, the message that he will be continuing to unpack and explain is the Gospel message. And what does he say in verse 3? He begins by saying, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what he says here. This grace and peace. A desire that he, that Paul's writing says, You know what I desire for the churches there that are reading this letter? He says, I desire grace and peace. Now think about that for a second. If you could sum up if you begin unpacking why you do things, and you begin unpacking layer after layer after layer, deep down when you get to the depths of our hearts and our souls, what is it that we seek? We are seeking peace or contentment, happiness. The word Paul uses here is peace. We are seeking peace with God. We are seeking peace with our fellow man or woman. And we are seeking peace within. And Paul is simply recognizing the fact that this, Paul is saying, my desire for you 
is that you find that peace. But as we're going to see in the next couple verses, there is only one way to find that peace that we all seek. And he said the first way that that's through is through grace. Because the reality is, is, that, is that we seek peace among ourselves, as we seek peace with God, as we seek contentment, there is a little problem that is three letters long. S-I-N. S-I-N. Sin. And so when you look at our problem as we seek peace with God, what's, what's the problem? Sin. God created a perfect creation. With Adam and Eve, there was peace in the garden. There was harmony between Adam and Eve and the Father. Until Adam and Eve transgressed the command to not eat of the forbidden fruit. And when that happened, peace was shattered. So do you know why you and I don't initially have peace with God? It's because of sin. The same sin that Adam and Eve did, we likewise rebel against God. Why do we have problems with our family? Why do we have problems with our spouses, with our children, our neighbors, the people in this congregation? Why do we have difficulty at times getting along with each other? Why do we have difficulty getting along with our parents? Why do you rebel against your parents? Why do parents get mad at the kids? Why do brothers and sisters not able to get along? Why can't neighbors get along? A three-letter word. S-I-N, sin. That we choose our pride and what we want to do ahead of the other person. Instead of following the commands of Scripture saying, consider everyone else as more significant than yourself, we consider ourselves more, more significant than everyone else. And the result is not peace, but, but conflict. The opposite of peace. And so Paul simply recognizes this reality that, that any honest person cannot deny. But he also recognizes that peace that we all desire is impossible to obtain outside of grace. And so this is why he says grace and peace to you. From who? From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's simply saying here, I know that you desire peace, but know that that peace is impossible to obtain outside of the grace that comes from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So throughout the New Testament, you will never see the Bible saying that any angel or any human being were the instruments of bringing grace and peace. It is always God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. So this morning we need to, first of all, recognize that if we're going to be submitting to God's message, if we're desiring to, to fulfill the desire of peace that we have, it will only come through God's grace. The word grace itself even assumes the fact that we don't deserve something. Because, because if I give you something that you deserve, then that's not grace. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. It's unmerited favor. 
So Paul is simply saying, my prayer for you to the churches of Galatia, and therefore my prayer for you and God's desire for us is that we be recipients of His peace and grace. Because without it, there is no hope. So how is this grace unpacked? Verse 4, he simply says that the source of this grace is God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 4, he begins to describe the Lord Jesus Christ by saying, Him who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God and our Father. So we're seeing here in these, in these verses here that Jesus died for our sins. He died to deliver us from the evil present age. And He died according to the will of God. So when we talk about the gospel that, that Paul is talking about here, and that he will continue to unpack for the rest of the book. The core of the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins. So the problem isn't politics. The problem isn't education. The problem isn't uh, lack of money. All these things that we love to, to list. As we need to fix this, we need to fix this, we need to fix this. The problem is sin. And the gospel addresses that problem. The gospel doesn't promise to give you a better job. The gospel doesn't promise to fix all your problems. It doesn't promise to give you a pay raise. It doesn't promise to heal you from cancer. It doesn't promise any of those things. But it does promise payment for your sins. And that is the root of the gospel. That Jesus paid for our sins. Or as Paul says, He gave Himself for our sins. He gave Himself. He willingly gave Himself. Yes, it was the Father's will, but Jesus submitted to that will. And He joyfully did that. And He willingly did that. And as Paul says later in the book, in chapter 3, verse 13, describing this, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So the idea here is that you deserve to die. I deserve to die on the cross. Because I have sinned and rebelled against God. You have sinned and rebelled against God. But the gospel, the good news, is that Christ gave Himself for our sins. That instead of Corey dying on the cross, Jesus died on the cross. Instead of John dying on the cross, Jesus died on the cross. And you can insert anyone who in this room claims Christ as their Lord. You can insert your name as the one who should have died on the cross. But in fact, Jesus died in your place. And that He gave Himself for our sins. Why did He do that? To deliver us from the present evil age. This idea of deliverance is throughout the Bible. How often do you see God delivering His people in the Old Testament? All the time. The book of Exodus is the greatest example. We see God's people in bondage. They are in the yoke of slavery under Pharaoh. And God delivers them. He's always promising the future redemption and future deliverance of His people. And here we see that taking place. That it is Christ who gave Himself to deliver us from the evil of this present age. And when he talks about this evil of the present age, he's not talking about that, that Christ came to, to save you and all of a sudden you're supposed to, to go and, and hide yourself and become a hermit from the world. 
And so you get, you get saved and you go to your house, you lock the doors up, you throw the TV out, you throw the computer out. You say, I'm not, not going out into the world anymore. Christ has saved me from this evil world. That's not what Paul is saying. Because that would go contrary to the rest of the Bible, where Jesus says that we as Christians are called to be a light and salt in this earth. But the Bible basically has two ideas or, or two concepts or, or two uh, ages. One, you have the present age, which is corrupted by sin. And then also you have the age to come, where God's people will dwell with Christ forever. And so what you have when Jesus came and when He died on the cross and when He was raised from the dead, you had the, the initiation of the age to come. So in some sense we have, we're living in the present age that is corrupted by sin and evil. But also, as Christians, we have a glimpse into the age to come because of the new birth that we have through faith in Christ. And so, one way to look at it would be almost like this. Let's say you're watching TV. And the TV you have is black and white, and it's one of those uh, uh, rabbit ear TVs. Does anybody have those anymore? Probably not. I think the government... Did something where they don't even work anymore. So, uh, but but basically, all of you know, most of us at least can remember a time where the only stations we had was maybe ABC, CBS, and NBC, and that was if you could get the ears to point in the right direction. And a lot of times, those stations, uh, let's say they were in black and white and just kind of fuzzy, like so. So you kind of hear uh, tidbits. So out of a ten-second clip, you get about five seconds of the movie. And you kind of have to put, put the pieces together uh, and figure out what's going on. That would be the equivalent of living in the present evil age. To where you have creation, but it's not a very clear creation because the reality is, is that it's distorted by sin. So this picture that you're watching is distorted by... It's distorted. So, so in fact, it's distorted by sin. So what Paul is talking about, when, when Christ delivers us from this present evil age, and a new birth takes place, we are given a glimpse into the age to come. So it would almost be like you're sitting there watching on your couch this fuzzy black and white movie. Let's say it's you know The Long Ranger. Because all those were in black and white. And it's fuzzy and you can't really hear what Tonto's saying. Uh, but... When new birth, the new birth takes place, it's like the new TVs that you can make the little, the little square screen pump. You can watch two screens at one time. I don't have one of those, but I've seen people that have them where you can push the button and, and you can watch two channels at one time. And it would be like the new birth is the new channel coming in and, and it's the clear picture. It's HD TV. To where it's almost like 3D. It's almost like it's jumping out and you're hearing everything crystal clear. You're seeing all the images, and it's the same show that you're watching the other ground, the, uh, in the background. But they're on the TV at the same time. But as a Christian, you're able to get a glimpse into the way the TV is supposed to be. And the promise that the Bible gives is that one day, Christ will return, and He will throw the rabbit ear TV in the trash can. And the full TV, or the full screen will be the HD screen. And so the reality is, as we think about that in the spiritual aspect, is that Christ saves us from our sin, 
But the reality is, is sin is still prevalent. We still struggle with sin. We are made perfect in Christ, but we are not yet perfect. So the picture is clear there on the TV, but the reality, the background is still still fuzzy, and there's still interference. And so what Paul is talking about here, he's saying that, that the gospel, the fact that Jesus died for our sins, delivers us from the evil present age. So that we are living almost between two worlds, between two times. That we're almost kind of caught in the mix here. That Christ reigns, but the fullness of His rule will not be seen until He returns. But it is to be seen in the lives of Christians. So it almost be like you're sitting on the couch with a non-believer. And you're watching this TV screen. And all of a sudden you're born again... And so you see the, the great image that comes up. And you're like, oh my goodness, TV is going to be great one day. And he's like, what are you talking about? All I see is the fuzzy, the fuzzy images. So it gives a different perspective on life. And that's what Paul is talking about. That we as Christians, when we live under the gospel, it doesn't mean that we're taken out of this world, but it doesn't mean that we live under the rule of Christ in a fallen world. And then the last things we see here that all this was done according to the will of our God and our Father. So our redemption was not my idea. It wasn't your idea. It was God's idea. It was in perfect accordance with His good pleasure. In perfect accordance with His will of purpose. And that He desired to redeem a people for Himself. And He made this plan before the foundations of the earth in communion with the Father, the Son, the Spirit, so that the Son would willingly give Himself for the sins of God's people and the Spirit would work in accordance to the will of the Father in bringing new life and giving new hearts a new birth and giving people open eyes to understand the truth of the Gospel and to respond in faith and to claim Christ as their Lord. And so as we think about these things for our congregation, the question that we have this morning and the question that will continue to be asked as we proceed through this book is do we know how to read the music notes? Not asking if you know how to clean the instrument. Not asking if you know what you're supposed to wear to the orchestra. Not asking if you know the right place that you're supposed to sit. Not asking if you know how to hold the trumpet or the clarinet or the flute or the violin. But the question is, do you know how to read the music? Do you know what the gospel is? That Christ died for our sins. And the reality is, is that the less we understand our own sinfulness, the less we will understand the beauty of the gospel. The less we will understand why Christ died for our sins. Because if you don't recognize your own sinfulness, if you don't think you have a problem, then the gospel isn't very good news. Because you don't know of any bad news. But I challenge you, at some point, 
in the next day. To force yourself to, to sit down for 10 minutes, however long it, you're willing to do it, and make yourself write out the sinfulness that is present in your life. And if you will begin that time by simply asking God, say, God, show me the depths of my sin. Show me the depths of my sin. And just take ten minutes and begin writing out. God, I know that I am selfish. And here are five specific ways that I show that I'm selfish. God, I know that, that I'm greedy. And here are ways that my greed manifests itself. God, I know that I am impatient with my spouse or my children, our children, that I don't respect the authority that God has placed over me and my parents. I just write. And I think if you are really honest, that after ten minutes you'll have a full page and you could realize you could go on for another hour. The importance of that is that we, when we do that, we are reminded of the beauty of the gospel. Because if we don't do things like that, we begin forgetting just how sinful we are. And maybe this morning you've never even thought about your own sinfulness. If that's the case, then come and learn the music notes for the first time. That Christ died for your sins. And that promise is for all who repent and claim and trust that truth. So faith faith is trusting in this truth that Christ died for our sins. And so as we unpack the gospel over the next few months, let us be a people who love the gospel. Who see the beauty of God's grace and His peace that He offers through the gospel. And not be a people who don't know how to read the music notes that are the core, fundamental foundation of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.